Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Jeffrey Shaw. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm great, Joshua. Good to be here with you. Great to talk to you. And it's been a while since I was on your former podcast called The Creative Warrior, uh, creativewarrior.com. Do I remember that right? Uh, yeah, creativewarriorsunite.com Unite, way yeah. back when. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm talking now because your book, Self-Employed Life, Business and Personal Development Strategies That Create Sustainable Success is out. And one of the questions that a lot of people ask me or say, one of the frustrations a lot of people talk to me about is I want to do stuff on sustainability, on the environment, but there are no jobs in it. And my, my thought is always, well, of course, there aren't many jobs in it because most of the places that are out there are doing the polluting and they're not in the business of mm-hmm. changing themselves. And there's plenty of opportunity, but you have to do it yourself. And the self-employed life is, in my, in my reading of it, the actual, see, when people start working on the environment, they think it's most important, the most important stuff is to learn about the relevant science or legislation or technology. And those things are important, but the actual on the ground skills are what you write about. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you to start off and, and maybe, maybe we should give a little bit more background of you. Yeah. I'll ask your background and then maybe you could lead into the, the, a question of between people who, are already self-employed or mm-hmm. people who are considering becoming self-employed. Do you have a, did you intend for it to be more for one, more for the other? I intended it to be for more, more for people who are already self-employed. Uh, to, to some, whether that was months or years or decades. Um, but what I found is an audience that really gravitated to it that was wanting to become self-employed. And I think that's partly just due to timing. The book came out in May of 2021, right smack in the middle of the great resignation. When people were, for all the reasons you mentioned, like people were looking for uh, life changes. You know, they were looking to go to shift from working for profit, which is what drives the motivation behind companies that aren't being sustainable. And the reason why there aren't as many jobs, you know, in that field is because businesses typically are driven by profit. Um where self-employed people tend to be driven by a sense of purpose. And one of the things that I, I, I coach my clients and, and teach in my business institute is the difference between an, an income-based business model and an impact business model. And self-employed people need an impact-based business model, meaning that they are building a business based on the impact they want to make on the world, knowing and trusting the income will follow because they need that to sustain their lives. But they're led first by by impact. So what I found is that an, an audience that were really looking uh, to to find those more purposeful careers and leave corporate or what have you. Um, so yeah, yeah, it was written for self-employed uh, those already already self-employed, but found a broader audience as well. Yeah, as I read it, I felt like yeah, I felt like you're writing from mostly self-employed. That's mm-hmm. who's seen the audience, but I, it felt like this would be very appealing to someone who's. Here's a quote that I found in it that whether we realize it or not in the beginning, I believe that what motivates us most is that who we can become is even more important than the rewards of the business. The desire to become bolder versions of ourselves, develop into into the best versions of ourselves is bigger than any fear, challenge, or obstacle that we might face. With all our desire to make money, earn a living, and impact the world, we are first drawn, whether we realize it or not, to our own personal development, which I guess is one of the three big parts of the book. Uh, personal development, but it's, I mean, you were talking about impact for the world or for your business to have on the world, but also for oneself. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, as I said, whether we realize it or not, I find we often don't realize it that those of us that are uh, driven to become self-employed or those of us that are d- driven to make a difference in the world and, and, and care about the environment, um, you know, there is an underlying drive to improve ourselves. All right, so we, we, there's a way in which we want to improve the world, uh, but in a way that's extrinsic motivation. The intrinsic motivation comes from this desire to be more, find more in ourselves. And I find, uh, certainly for myself, and, and you know, as I often say, I think uh, being self-employed is like personal development on steroids, right? Because you encounter more, you face more, you're triggered more. Uh, so to me, it's a huge invitation, whether we're conscious of it or not. I think it's a huge invitation to uh, to grow and, and to become, like, like I said, the book, bigger, bolder versions of ourselves. Um, and I think that's an underlying drive. And 
again, the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation is extrinsic motivation isn't, doesn't sustain itself. It doesn't last where intrinsic motivation does. So sometimes we don't know why the hell we can keep on going. You know, and that's just the nature of being self-employed. And there's always a little bit of crazy in every self-employed person because it's not the easy road. What keeps us going? It's just whether we're conscious of it or not, it's this desire to find more in ourselves uh, than we may initially believe that's even there. This is music to my ears of what you're saying, this distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic, because it's so much of what I do. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you to, can you, I want to ask you to go on about that, but actually let's go back a step because I, uh, maybe you can tell us a bit of your background and what brought you to here and what motivated you to write this book. So my background is uh, actually, as I now refer to it as my original career, is having been a portrait photographer for very affluent families. And, you know, that, that in itself, as I reflect back, so I did that for, well, it was my main, it was my only income for 25 years. And for the past 15 years, I've been doing less portrait photography in order to make room for building a coaching practice and ultimately write books and speak and uh found the Self-Employed Business Institute, et cetera. So over the past 15 years, I've just been doing less photography to the degree that today I still do a few shoots a year, but very little. I mean, now it's just a matter of just people that I'm particularly attached to. But it was an interesting, in hindsight, it gives a very interesting perspective on so much of what you're talking about, about uh, the environment and sustainability, because on the surface, working with very affluent families, on the surface, they're, they're very materialistic driven, right? I mean, they have the mansions and, you know, I built a business you, leveraging my name and turning my name, Jeffrey Shaw, into this, you know, this brand, uh, like a designer brand relative to portrait photography. So I kind of, I intentionally built a, an image that I was like the photographer for affluent families. It meant something to have my name on their portraits. So I played into a value system, you could say, that seemed very surface level and materialistic. Now, I say that also acknowledging that, honestly, I worked with the the nicest, most decent people ever. I mean, the reason why they hired me is because they were families that, you know, a family of four may have had a staff of eight running the house, but it's because they were so focused on their kids. Like they, they wanted staff to do everything else so that they could go to their kids' soccer games. And I really loved their family values. But I also had to acknowledge they were major consumers, right? Consumers that drove our economy, but also consumers of the environment. I mean, they were, you know, they had private jets. They consuming a lot of oil. They had massive homes that were unnecessary. So I was, often found myself in this battle between really, and I think this is, this is what gets people tangled up on the issues of the environment. I found myself really tangled with people who had astonishingly good values as people. They donated to charities. They founded foundations that supported our world. They put their children and their family first. And they had unnecessary, they were unnecessary consumers of, of our, of our planet. So I found myself always kind of like not sure where I fit into that. But ultimately, you know, as we were just speaking about, ultimately felt really driven to do something more purposeful in the world. So what I did is I just wanted to take that 25 years of business experience and fight for the small guy, you know, fight for the smallest of small businesses, right? Because small business by definition is up to 500 employees. I wanted to fight for the business of one, the business of five. And I actually, in doing that, found a much deeper passion for why we also needed to take care of our planet. Because actually, our planet and the environment is the biggest of small guys. You know, and I just, I look at who I fight for every day, the smallest of businesses. And I, I, as a value, I I fight for marginalized people and and want to stand up for anybody in a marginalized community. And I realize that in a lot of ways, our planet is the smallest of big guys because it's a big place dominated by people living on it. So in a lot of ways, it's still, like I said, so I just, I, I was able to step into more purposeful work by gradually leaving but I could kind of say the materialistic world that I, that I created for myself as a business and into work uh, as a coach and an author that uh, 
that feels more purposeful. And, uh, and I'm very grateful for, I'm grateful for both experiences. Like I said, it's, it's kind of like hitting both sides of the room, the walls on both sides of the room, uh, and finding your place in the middle where it makes sense. I feel like a lot of people listening to this want to do more and they're afraid of making the step that you just described. Would you mind walking through? I mean, did you abandon a, a high source of income with the great network? Did you build on it? Were you afraid of losing great income and all the connections? Or was it yeah. so obvious you couldn't help it? Or you know, what was that process like? So, um, yeah, there was, I mean, certainly a loss of income for a long time. And, and I, but I also don't need as much. And I think that, again, comes down to our care for the environment. You know, my kids are old and older and grown and out of the house. And I live in a much smaller house today than I did in the years I was raising my kids with a big house on six and a half acres. And, in the country and um yeah my needs are different so i tend to build a a shell of a life around myself just a little bit beyond my needs because i hey i like luxury i like to i like to uh be comfortable but i build the shell of my life the expenses the house i live in uh just a little bigger than necessary and that's just a comfortable place for me and what's necessary for me today is different so yeah it was i would say josh to some degree it was Inevitable. And I see this a lot in, in the clients that I work with that are leaving their corporate jobs. Um, by the time they contact me for coaching support, they have a very strong, what I refer to as the inkling. Like they have an inkling there's something bigger for them to do this. They have an inkling there's something more meaningful they want to do. They may not even know what it is. And, and they often come to me, which I, is my preference. They kind of come to me as a blank page. Like, I know I want to do something in the world more purposeful and meaningful than this job I'm checking in and out of as an executive, but I just don't know what it is. And I love that because that's my creative abilities to, to come up with a business model for them. But I'll tell you what, my, my, in my experience personally and the experience I see with my clients is that once you've got that inkling, it's pretty hard to turn it off. I don't know that you can be truly happy in your life with something nagging at you that there's something more purposeful for you to do than, than, than collect a paycheck. It's really hard. So that was my feeling. I think I, it started for me with this inkling that there was something bigger for me in this world to do, despite the fact I had a super successful business and, and it afforded me all the luxuries of life. Uh, I had an inkling there was something bigger to do, and I don't know that I could have followed, not followed it. And what I find, and I think this perhaps would help uh, many people, is once I had that inkling, I kind of headed towards a process of feeling complete. Right. What I didn't want and I don't want for my clients is to feel like you have walked away from something that you haven't brought closure to. So when people ask me, why did you leave such a successful business as a portrait photographer? Were you bored? Did you get after 25 years? Did you get tired of doing it? I was like, never. I was never bored a single photo shoot. I felt complete. I felt like I had taken myself as far as I, regardless of how far I took the business, I felt like I had taken myself as far as I could in using photography as the vehicle. And I needed something, I needed another tool. I needed a different career path to take myself to my next level of growth. That's why I, I transitioned. I'm playing around with this idea, or I'm exploring mentally this idea of, of this inkling that you described, because at first I was going to say, the inkling for most people now is like front page news virtually daily of environmental issues all around the world that 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, it was maybe once a week, once a month, maybe, but now it's in our faces every day. But I think the inkling is not that. The inkling that I think a lot of people have is that, like, that's the flood, but I can do something about it. I mm -hmm. think they have an inkling, there might be something I can do. And also the 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 internal conflict that you described, one of my big touch points now is uh, I've been learning a lot about Abraham Lincoln, you know, pretty well-known effective leader. Mm -hmm. And he said, nothing damages you more than to do something that you believe is wrong. Mm. And, you know, notice he didn't say nothing damages you more than owning slaves or to do what I think is wrong. It's what you yourself think is wrong. And that internal conflict, I think most of us, certainly me up until, I mean, I still feel it because I still do things that pollute unnecessarily. Sometimes I just feel like, what well, I don't have a choice right now. I'm in a hurry or family reasons or something like that. And then we repress it and suppress it because we'll do anything. And I think this is what Lincoln was getting at. We'll do anything to face, to avoid facing that internal conflict. 
And so I think it emerges in, in many of us as that inkling, I can do something. And yeah, I would agree. And I, and I, and it's that much harder to shut that off. You know, it's, um, and there are compliments, you know, I will, and it, some of it's irrational, but I think it's because of the inkling. Like if, you know, if, if a, a post-it note accidentally gets thrown in the trash and not recycling, that will nag at me. Like it's a post-it note, right? Um, and yet, you know, I live where I live in, in Florida. Um, the recycling procedures are a bit funky, <laughs> uh, to say the least. And as we often find in a lot of refuse or like, this is, this is so illogical nature to it in that, you know, I, I've just moved, uh, a month or so ago, I moved into, uh, a different home and yeah, as a moving dog, first of all, I saved every box because my intention is, and there were hundreds of them, my intention is to provide them for people when they're moving. Like it drives me crazy that, you know, the way boxes are disposed of, uh, when one moves. But we had a lot of, because of furniture delivery and things like that, we had a lot of oversized boxes. And unless it could be broken down into something that could fit in the recycling can, the refuse company would take it. So I couldn't just place large boxes along on the curb alongside the, the can. Like that would have to go into trash. And it was so illogical to me. And I was very conscious of my own feelings of having to accept that in some cases, and yet it pain, it being painful to throw out a post-it note. So, and I think that somewhat that illogical nature is coming from that inkling, right? It's just, I, I'm somebody who like, I, I don't like to see things over cleaned. Like I don't believe in over laundering because of the use of water, right? I, I, I think sheets, towels, things like that should be washed at the, at a minimum based on usage. Um, as opposed to just, you know, washing your towels every two days or three days. It's like, you know, because I'm very conscious. So there is the, the inkling idea you bring as it pertains to this is interesting because it is a feeling, right? It's the something it's because of your values. If you have a value for sustainability, uh, there's nothing stronger to Abraham Lincoln's point. Like, I don't think there's anything once you're in touch with your values, it's really hard to ignore that without deteriorating your soul. There was a, in your suggested reading, there was, uh, most of the books were modern books. I mean, like past couple decades books. Mm -hmm. And there was one that was different. And I'd, I'd love to hear your thought process of putting in. Can you guess what, which one I'm going to talk about? Men's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Yeah, it was either that one or I wasn't sure there's another one uh, called The Diamond Cutter. I wasn't sure if you somehow came across that one, but. And I often, when asked about great books like to recommend, I often mention that one. And I'm mm -hmm. curious, I mean, I can guess a lot of reasons, but I'm curious your reasons to include that because we're talking now about values in the face mm -hmm. of overwhelming challenge. Yeah. I mean, it's a classic book. You know, I would say it's, it's something, yeah, I've recommended it to my kids. Like everybody needs to read the book because of, uh, you know, it, it, the way it, for me, it's almost two reasons. One is, yes, it, it's a demonstration of values, but it's also optimism in the face of absolutely no reason to be optimistic. And I would say, you know, although uh, my optimism per se isn't one of my six core values, um, well, I may, I may question that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I am driven by optimism in this, in the face of any opposition. And I, I guess I feel that way about the environment too. You know, I just, I will continue to be optimistic about our, our willingness to solve the problems until there isn't a choice. <laughs> you know, I, I just, I choose to be uh, just the way I live my life. I choose to be optimistic. Um, I don't even know if it's choice I, I, because if there's a choice, I'm going to choose optimism. Um, so I will choose to be optimistic. And I, I, that was a core takeaway from, uh, man's, uh, search for meaning from, from the book is, is for me, it was, yes, it was about values, but it was also about just pure optimism in the face of absolutely no reason to be optimistic. I think that's really important for people to get that when we take on these challenges, I mean, I'm doing this podcast, I've been doing this podcast for some time and I didn't know what I was going to get into, but doing it is, 
action is so much more valuable than not action. And what, do you know that quote about, uh, um, oh, how does it go? It's, it, Imperfect action beats non-action every time. There was that one, which I saw from, <laughs> yeah. I saw you had from Teddy Roosevelt. And yeah. when I, I, when I saw that, I thought there's another one from, it's not Teddy Roosevelt's, but it's, it's in his autobiography where he quotes someone else whose name escapes me, but it says, do what you can with what you've got where you are. Mm. I'm like, that's great. He boiled it down so simple. The uh, No, there's another quote that says, when you act, providence acts too, and all sorts of things that you never could have imagined would have happened suddenly work out in your favor. Thing, resources that never would have appeared appear, people who never would have you never would have thought would help you start helping you. I'm, I'm not getting it quite right, but it's this great quote that, when you start acting, then things start working for you if you commit. Yeah, I agree with that a hundred percent. And you know, and I, I do, I can recall that quote. And of course, you know, the word providence implies some level of of spirituality or religion, whether that's one's perspective or not. Because honestly, I, I'm I consider myself a fairly spiritual person, but I'm not a religious person. Um, but I've been on this planet long enough to know that that. That is absolutely true. You know, it's, and it's, and it's usable in both, um, a trust perspective as we go through our lives. I mean, one of, uh, a mantra I've always held for myself for through the most difficult of times in life. Uh, I have a particular mantra. I call it my trust mantra. And my trust mantra is that when it, when it appears that everything is falling apart, to trust that it's falling together for something bigger than I can imagine. And that's a mantra I repeat to myself during challenging times in life because I have evidence that that is true. I have evidence that I, I may not understand the reasoning behind this. Those times we go through those times when we have those, those clusters in life of bad things happening. We've all been through them and I've certainly had my share of them. Um, and it, it's defies logic. Like why is all of this happening at once? But I have, you know, at 58 years old, I just have way too many evidence that way too much evidence in life that when you prepare yourself to take action and sometimes action is a decision within ourselves to move forward or a decision within ourselves to, to keep going. Um, I do believe kind of a band of angels kind of shows up, you know, this is the, the people that you need to meet the circumstances. It just, it just shows up. And in a very practical sense, I, and I actually tell a story in my book about how when at 23 years old or so, when I realized the truth of that, that I began using it in a very practical business sense. It became one of my primary marketing strategies was to simply let people know that I existed, right? So I would go into country clubs. I would go into children's clothing stores. I would just go into businesses where my ideal portrait photography client frequented just simply to say to the owner or the manager of that club, it's like, hey, I just want you to know I exist. And inevitably, as I shared one story in the book uh, where I, I did so with a, a country, a very exclusive country club manager, I stopped in and, and kept saying to him, I'm not asking anything of you. I just want you to know I exist. And he had no reason why. He, 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 I was actually bothering him and he kind of made it clear I was bothering him. And, um, two days later he called me and he, he said, you know, never in my 20 years or so that I've been a manager at this club, has anybody asked me for a family portrait photographer? You came in two days ago and today somebody just left my office oh, asking That's for great. a photographer. And, you know, and he, and he's, I loved it. He, he was, you know, I was 23. So he was a middle-aged guy. And he said to me, he goes, young man, I don't know what you're up to, but keep doing it. <laughs> Right. But here's the thing, Joshua, I'll bet that he's probably been asked many times for a family photographer, but nobody came to mind. Therefore, he brushed it off and he doesn't even recall being asked. The difference is it's actually in the science band is called brain priming. I primed his brain to recognize an answer when somebody had a question. All right. So there is there is both a I think a spiritual component to just understanding that's the way life works. And there's also a scientific perspective to understand brain priming and there's a logical actionable strategy to that to just say that now step into action right so i took further action from that and said well i'm just gonna the more people i can let them know that i just exist the more times things like that are going to happen these serendipitous moments but you serendipity isn't luck right serendipity is often 
circumstance, the circumstances were set up for the serendipity to happen. You're making me think of an, an, another guest on the podcast, also named Jeffrey. Um, his name is Jeffrey Madoff. And I always have to think yeah. about it because I've, it's I've not- I've interviewed him as well. Yeah. Oh, you know. Okay. Yeah. Because he- I would sit in on his class and all these people were very super successful people. Like a lot of people were in fashion. And I remember one guy was working on the floor of some uh, department store and he would just put his name in the pockets of all the jeans that they would sell. Wow. And that led to him. I think he's the one who became president of Sean John. So he worked directly with, um, uh, I don't know these worlds. Um, Sean Combs, I think was the guy that he worked directly I think with. So yeah, I started trying to recall too. Mm-hmm. And there are all sorts of stories like that. And I want to clear, I want to get back to something I said earlier and clarify something that in this podcast, my main, one of my main goals with, for listeners is to, is to wake up and, and, uh, cause that mindset shift followed by a process of continual transformation that, cause I think a lot of people were, were, were repressing and, and denying these things inside us of like, oh, I'm doing something. I could do it differently. And probably most people have a sense that they're doing something that they consider wrong. But I'm not getting down into the nuts and bolts on the ground. You use the word practical several times of what to actually do. And that's you're, – you're doing something that I'm not, which is actually implementing a business on this transformation. And if 8 billion people – roughly speaking, are feeling like I should do something. That's a pretty big demand. Mm-hmm. And no one's meeting that demand. And the practical skills of self-employment are where people are going to get started. It's, I mean, so many big companies have a name like, I don't know, McKinsey. Someone started it. Well, I guess it wasn't McKinsey. I mean, still someone started it. It wasn't McKinsey, but someone before him. And someone started it. And then it became this big, you know, global juggernaut. You know, again, self-employed businesses are founded by people that, you know, have a sense of meaning and purpose. And what, of course, what we're seeing now, which I so appreciate, is younger generations are so driven by their values. And sometimes I love the subtlety of it. So one of my coaching clients, um, young woman, Maybe she's 30 now. I mean, she, and she's had this business for a few years, but she, she's the founder of uh, a company called My O's. It's O-H-H-S, I think. Uh, it is an underwear company for women. Now, disposable underwear. And what makes it interesting, I mean, there's so many aspects of that makes it interesting in that it's not about incontinence, right? So as, and I worked with her on her branding and basically, you know, we've honed her brand message down to it's disposable for women. Uh, disposable underwear for women when they don't want to ruin the good stuff. Okay. So it's either they're on their period or they're going for a spray tan, right? And, and they want to wear something. So you wear a, a pair of disposable panties that they can do the spray tan around you. Or it's when you go to the gym or camping, camping, like was a big thing for her that, uh, you know, that she had something she didn't have to worry about her nice stuff. So it wasn't about incontinence. It was a different spin on disposable women underwear for women. And it was about when you don't want to ruin the good stuff. Um, she's a, a black woman business owner. And one of the features that was not highlighted in her branding was that the underwear, this disposal underwear is made from bamboo. And underneath the reason it was made from bamboo, because sure, bamboo is soft, it's sustainable, all those reasons. But underneath it was that she refused to use cotton because of the history of cotton in with oh, regards yeah. to slavery. Right? So... It was, and this is something I felt that as her branding consultant, I felt like she should bring out and be proud of. And because it was a value decision that was so embedded in her values, she didn't even see the benefit of highlighting it. Right. But by all means, other black women were going to really align with that value. And she awoken me to something that I hadn't even considered. Right. But how that means something to her. I actually, to be honest with you, I'm in the process now of just beginning my third book, uh, and it's a, it's a book about self-doubt, uh, but specifically self-doubt for high achievers. And, uh, you know, I've got a, I'm working on a survey, and this survey is part of my research. And I'm intending on getting that survey in the hands of other marginalized groups, uh, different people of different race, uh, different sexual orientations. Because it's one thing for me to talk about self-doubt, 
But your perspective on doubt and self-doubt is different if you're from a marginalized community. I mean, you might doubt that you're going to survive, right? So there's so many other, again, those underlying values that often cause people to take action. Like she took action. Her name is Patricia. She took action on creating disposable underwear out of bamboo instead of cotton based on her embedded values. And it was so embedded, she didn't highlight it as a, as a, something beneficial in her marketing, but it was a big driver behind the business that she created. I think this is, this is going back to my optimism. This is what I'm most optimistic. If this is, if the, if these are the values of, of our future leaders and business owners, I, that, that thrills me because they are, much, I mean, the younger generations behind me anyway are, are so driven by their values that I don't think there's ever been a better time to be, A, to be self-employed and to build a business based on your values. And if your values are sustainability and environment, then the world is calling you to step up. That's your inkling. And I don't know how you'll not do it. And I, I think we're, again, this is where I remain optimistic. I think hopefully some self-employed business owners will innovate some very creative measures towards sustainability. Yeah, I can tell you that people who act today are, their names are, they're going to become legacies and they're going to go down in history in the way that he, I mean, Lincoln, I mean, be the potential for that kind of, of change in our society. I want to go back to a quote because you were talking about values and, and there's a quote that when you talk about trust in the trust section of your book, I'm going to read another quote of yours, if you don't mind. Sure. Our very high level of care about what, it's about what we do, our inclination toward perfectionism, often feeling like no one is going to do something as well as we can do it. We've put the weight of the world on our shoulders and unintentionally may have trained ourselves to only trust in ourselves, or at least to a large part. The problem is, if you don't believe in something bigger than yourself, you're going to continue to put the weight on your shoulders and will be limited by what you can carry. Trust is the active habit of believing, believing in yourself, believing in others, believing in what you gain, believing in what you lose, believing in what you know. Believing in what you don't understand. Yeah. To me, it's it's just stepping off into the abyss and knowing that everyone you look up to stepped into the abyss and had faith in themselves and were able to, you know, it's going to be hard, but there's another side to, on the other side of it. Yeah, I think, you know, thank you for reading that quote because it, it awakens me to a little bit of a different perspective because when I wrote it, it was coming from the great care that I feel for self-employed business owners and, and seeing how often um, they, you know, as business owners and as somebody who, you know, as you were saying earlier, has their name on their business, whether they actually do or not, they feel like their emotions behind their business definitely feels like their name is on it. And I've realized how, you know, I've, I've, I've challenged some people that they didn't trust enough. They didn't have enough faith and they would push back and say, oh, yeah, I do. You know, they'll demonstrate their source of their faith as how much they believe and how much they trust. And it's like, really? Then why is it you operate as if the weight of the world is on your shoulders? Like, why is it then that you operate as if, you know, your whole financial house is going to crumble if you don't meet your projections and your goals? So it's awakening them to what they're saying in their head is, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I, I have faith. I have trust. And actually looking at their behaviors. And I, I do think there's a way in which if you are an independent thinker and you're willing to put yourself out there and, and take that leap, which kudos to you because there's a level of trust that it takes to do that, a trust in yourself and trust that things are going to work out. But unintentionally in that process, you end up training yourself to not trust because once you've taken the leap, you then throw all the weight on your own shoulders and you're like, if I don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. If I don't do it, if I don't do it myself, nobody's going to do it as well. And next thing you know, you're putting all this weight on your shoulders and, and you know, inadvertently, there's just, you can't carry any more on your shoulders than your ability to, to carry that weight. So if you want bigger, if you want bigger for yourself, if you want bigger for the world, to me, you have to surrender to believing in something bigger than yourself. And that doesn't have to be a spiritual being or a universe, but even trusting in the belief that serendipity, as we were talking about before, will happen. The serendipity, that believing in what you ask for will be delivered. 
believing in your vision, like what you imagine for the future can be um, against all logic. It's, it's one of the reasons why in my business institute, when I talk about goal setting, uh, you know, I try to stress because we've been, it's in the entrepreneurial world, it's just been in, pounded into our heads about the need for goals. And, you know, I've had to moderate that belief a little bit for myself and, and, and for my students and say, it's, yes, you have to have goals, but in today's world to align with the, the strongest of energy around you, I believe you need to be committed to an outcome and not be confident in how you're going to get there because you have to be willing to trust in the, the meandering path. You have to be, tr- you have to be willing to try or what I like to say instead of goals is to follow what's unfolding. Like it takes a keen eye and a keen instinct and a keen gut or awareness of your gut to, uh, particularly in today's world and, and in particular to issues of the environment is to stay really keen to follow what's unfolding. Uh, because it's the only way we're going to solve the world's problems is not to just have our eye on a goal uh, without paying attention to what's unfolding in front of us right now so that we can uh, you know, evolve and pivot accordingly. I also want to go back to something you said earlier that I don't know how, why I pulled so many quotes from reading yours because <laughs> I don't usually just pull quotes up, but uh, you talked about Gen Z and young people and you wrote, one of the biggest myths of, is that entrepreneurship is for the young and ready to hustle. When in fact, a report, a 2018 report from the National Bureau of Economic Research said that the average age of the fastest growing new companies was 45. Against commonly held beliefs, midlife entrepreneurs actually have the highest success rates of startup businesses. And on my side, I can't stand when someone says, oh, the next generation, I see that they will solve our problems. I'm like, that's just abdicating responsibility. Right. That if we don't, if we old people, I get a lot of males and, and people with gray hair contacting me. And if we tell them, here's what you have to do, but we aren't doing it ourselves, they just learn, okay, that's what we'll tell our kids to do while we don't do it ourselves either. And in your case, if you're not young, you probably have a pretty good, ch- you have a better chance of succeeding if you start something on your own. Yeah. And I think that's just, again, go back to the inkling, right? I mean, who's waking up right now are people that have, uh, you know, devoted their life to maybe one corporate job for decades or one career path, even that involved different jobs. And they're awakening to that not being their most meaningful work, right? They're not 20 year olds. Those are 40 and 50 and 60 year olds. Now I'm coaching today in, for example, the students of the self-employed business institute range from 32 to 72 and the heaviest percentage are in their fifties. Okay. So these are people that, uh, many students have left corporate in the last few years and have, have decided to create their own consulting practice or type of business. You know, and I personally like it when people are out there for a couple of years. It's sort of the same reason I wrote the book for self-employed business owners is there's, there's data available. There's experience that's available once somebody's been out there for a bit, which is why we, we kind of skew our curriculum towards that. So for the most part, these are people that have probably, they left their corporate job maybe one to three years ago and are finding it more challenging. We had, uh, one client to mine is a NASA scientist, formerly a NASA scientist. And I, you know, I loved her frustration when she now is self-employed and at one point being angry and saying, you know, I'm a damn rocket scientist. Why can't I figure out how to run a business? <laughs> and I was like, well, because it's very different, you know, yeah. and, but I love and, and many of our students have master's degrees and PhDs and many of them have PhDs. But, you know, no matter what education you bring to the table, life is a different education and self. That's why my book's called The Self-Employed Life. Like. It's, it's a life and it's a different, you know, it's, it's not as easy to, to, to teach in a book, if you will. It's, it's something one needs to experience. So I just think, you know, I really wanted to show favor, if you will, to fa- show favor and also encourage people kind of at midpoints in their lives. Uh, I tell the story in the book of a guy named Ted that had left his, he had recently resigned from the third company that he created. And he was 55 at the time and he contacted me and he introduced himself and said, I'm, I'm, you know, 55 years old because I have no idea what my future looks like. He says, but I'm not dead yet. And that's what stood out to me. Like, he's like, I want, I want to make a difference in the world. I want to create 
a business that fits into the life I want to live, but I'm not dead. <laughs> so he was looking at another runway of another 20 years, perhaps, and he wanted to do something with that runway. And I just, I think that's an underserved, underappreciated market that I wanted to make sure that I really acknowledged uh, that uh, you know, some of the people that can make the biggest difference in our planet right now are people that are driven by that inkling, driven by passion, and they're in their 50s and 60s. Uh, we're certainly, we should not be leaving this up to the generation after us to fix. We, we need to step up. I'm trying to think, are there any excuses left for someone out there who's thinking, I want to do something, but maybe later? Are there any excuses left? You know, it's so cliche, Joshua, but life is short. You know, and, and I feel I've, I've, I've begun to grant myself permission to use that cliche because men in my family don't typically make it out of their 50s. Uh, I'm 58. And I realize how much of my desire to take action is driven by the fact that life feels short to me. I intend on living to 90. <laughs> um, but I, I have a, what I say, I always call a healthy relationship to mortality. I intend on living to 90. I intend on doing the work that I'm doing for a good long time. And the men in my family die in their 50s, right? My father was 52. My brother was 59. Um, massive heart attacks. There's a, there's a undefined, you know, heart issue in my family because they're not even normal heart attacks. It's, it's more of a, a heart burst. Um, in, in fact, a doctor is, is even applying possibly to do some research on my body as an answer to this genetic flaw that may exist in other families as well. So I am driven. By, so I know I don't think there is any other excuse because life is short. And, uh, you know, and, and in a simple way, we can say if we haven't learned that in the last couple of years, what the hell is it going to take? Right? I mean, it's so cliche. Life is short, short, take action now. But it's a cliche for a reason. Like, how do you ignore that? You know, we, we can't wait 20 years to tackle many of the problems in our lives and on the, on the planet. The time is now. And, um, you know, I'm definitely driven by a feeling that life is short. And I've, I've learned to turn it into, like I said, a healthy relationship with mortality because I don't want that to, I don't want to, the irony is I don't want to live in a constant state of stress and urgency because that's exactly what would kill me, <laughs> right? So I have for myself and I encourage others to find a healthy relationship to mortality in that you can realize you don't have forever to, to make, create the life of your dreams and to, solve the world's problems. Um, but it can be done in a way that is methodical, consistent, sustainable, with an underlying appreciation for the urgency of it without living under the pressure of stress and urgency, because at the end of the day, that can be paralyzing. So we have to figure out how to operate. And I think this is a key to our planet today is we have to figure out how to operate with a, a healthy sense of urgency. Uh, we don't have time forever. We should be driven by our, our purpose. Uh, but we can't wait forever either. It's funny you're talking about time. And then I have to mention that uh, when I opened the book, I saw, and longtime listeners will recognize, Dory Clark's name has been a mm -hmm. guest on the podcast. Mike McCallowitz has been a guest on the podcast. For people who really know, Tom Schwab, on my the Amazon page for my Leadership Step-by-Step, Step, he wrote, not wrote, uh, recorded a wonderful video of that, of uh, endorsement of it, and which I didn't even ask him to. And But there was a name in there that I saw at the very end, who I've worked with, you'll never guess how I would know Peter Tunney. And you had oh, a great story about uh, him of, yeah. of like this wonderful, open-hearted interaction with him. Mm -hmm. Do you have time to share that or is that? Yeah, yeah, okay. crazy. So um, so I, I did a TEDx talk in March of 2018. And um, leading up to the TEDx, as one, you know, you, you know, having done TEDx talks um, that you know the prep leading up to it is kind of intense and, and getting ready for your talk, et cetera. And um, I happened to go through a really bad emotional breakup. You know, it wasn't it wasn't the longest relationship in my life. It just happened to be one that triggered a lot of deep feelings uh, at the loss of this relationship. And it happened right like, a month before the TEDx event. So I actually had uh, considered dropping out of the TEDx event. And I worked with my uh, my editor of my books, but as well as she was helping me with my TEDx talk. And I, I told her that I was going to let the organizers know I was backing out. 
And she said, well, give me the weekend. Let's talk on Monday. Give it the weekend before you contact them. Um, so, you know, I agreed to giving her that weekend. And over that weekend, I had a client visiting and I took her to Wynwood Walls, which is a, the art district in Miami and walked into Peter Tunney's, uh, gallery. And now mind you, my TEDx talk is, uh, it's called the validation paradox, but the underlying message of it is a lot about expectations. And it's about how, uh, expectations, uh, set us up for a lot of deep emotions like self-doubt and, and, criticism, et cetera. And, and I walk in and there's this massive piece of art on the wall that says expectations are the blueprint for disaster or disappointment. Expectations are the blueprint for disappointment. And I, I chuckled. I'm like, well, isn't that ironic, right? I mean, here's this sign. So, but the, the price tag was phenomenal. Uh, but there was this gentleman behind the counter and I, I went over to him and said, by chance, do you have a print of that piece of art? And he said, sure, I do. And he walked around the counter. When he walked around the counter, I realized he was covered in paint. So I said, are you by chance Peter? And he said, yes. And I said, what are you doing here? Like, I, it's a gallery I frequent a lot, and you don't expect the artist to be there. And he, he said, I've had a really terrible day, and I'm just here. So he goes on to show me the print, and I'm sharing with him why this is important to me. And the print is $3,000, uh, which isn't what I had planned on spending on the way to dinner. But at this point, I'm with the artist. I'm looking at the artwork. He's fulfilling my request. I felt obligated to buy it. So he takes it, he slips the print out of the case. He whips a pencil out from behind his ear and he signs the print. And I'm like, well, I own it now, right? He's just put my name on it and he signed it. And he hands it to me. He says, my gift to you. And I said, you can't do this. And he says, the hell I can't. It's my business. <laughs> and, and I looked at him and I said, no, seriously, I'll pay for this. And he says, look, he goes, I know you think I'm giving you a gift. He goes, but the story you just told me as to why this means something to you in your TEDx talk. He says, is your gift to me? And I really needed that today. So this is my gift. And here's my business card. I want you to contact me after your TEDx talk. He says, because you're doing it. And I did. <laughs> and what came of the TEDx talk? Um, the, the TEDx talk went well and ultimately was moved to TED.com, which is a pretty rare occasion for a TEDx talk. Um, and so, um, yeah, it, it, it apparently resonated. And I love that story. And I'm going to share how I know him. Are you in touch with him still? Do you see him? Um, no, it's been a while. I mean, I have seen him maybe once or twice before. Because I, like I said, I used to go into the gallery all the time, and, and occasionally he is there. So just about 20 years ago, this club opened up in New York called Crowbar. And this is at the tail end of my clubbing days. I don't know how many people know this about my, my background, that I had this business with this display that we put in subway tunnels that when the trains looked, went by, it looked like a movie screen. Mm -hmm. And we would put ads in there. After the business had its troubles after 9-11 and the recession, I had the right, I retained the rights from the business to make art out of it. And I had no background in art, PhD in physics, and I didn't know how to make art, but people really loved it. And a friend of mine, this, this is a kind of similar story. A friend of mine had started working at the club a year before it opened. It took a year to, re, to take this whole warehouse and convert it into like this incredible space. And she asked me, she said, hey, it's going to open really soon. Why don't you come by and check it out? She, she wanted to show, show off her where she worked. And I contrived to bring one of my pieces of art with me for like, it, it's a big deal to lug it around. It's a big pain. So I get there and I say, where can I put this? And she's like, oh, put it there in the corner. So I stick, I go walk to the middle of the room, plug it in and turn it on. And all these people start walking by. I'm like, this is really cool. And then the owners of the place, Kenny and Cal go by and they say, can you get this in by the, by next week for the, our big launch? And I'm I'm thinking there's no possible way I can do that. And out of my lips comes yes. <laughs> I have no idea how I'm going to do this, but somehow with their people and so forth, I get the thing up by launch. And like actually, like as people were coming in, the handyman people were like the super or whatever were like still putting the last touches on. And Peter and I were the two artists who were featured mm -hmm. by Crowbar. We were there at the launch and we were there when it closed. And mm. he was like a, a resident artist there who had his own room. And, and so if you see him and mention me, he might remember, he might not remember the name, but he'll definitely remember my art and us collaborating, not collaborating, but, wow. you know, talking yeah. art together. And he's the kind of guy that will remember for sure. Yeah. I, so hearing your story fits in with what I know of him, of, of being very generous and listening and, in the midst of, of all this glamour and, and art world and club world, very human. Yeah. And, he, and he's, yeah, he's driven to create art 
uh, you know, like we're saying, from a place of purpose. You know, it's not just that he's, he's financially very successful and he is a good, clearly he's a good business head, uh, and the way he drives things, but also driven by a deep, deep sense of purpose in, in his art and in his business practices. To wrap up, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up or anything to say directly to the listeners? Oh my gosh. I, no, it's actually, it's been a, you know, just a wonderful conversation. I was very intrigued by your invitation um, to talk about sustainability when in, in literally sustainable is, is in the subtitle of my book, right? Business and personal development strategies that create sustainable success. And the piece the piece of business success that so often people miss is the sustainability piece. And sustainability in business, as I teach it, is built by habits, right? Sustainability is, is formed by your daily habits and your mindset. Uh, because you can take all the actions, you can, you can, you can work hard, you can take all, you can develop yourself, but none of it is sustainable without continuous, steady, consistent mindsets and practices. And I think that's so interesting how, how much I have, I've been enforcing that, that reality in business and how much it actually applies to creating a sustainable world and sustainability is, is an environmental mission. So, um, cause at the end of the day, that's the action I take. It's, it's an everyday action. It's every day. What, what action? How can I be living my life? And I know you do this too. It's how can I be living my life to sustain our environment? It's not just the big actions that we take on a Tuesday. It's what we do every day. And that's true of business success. And I think it's true of sustainability. Jeffrey Shaw, thank you very much. Thank you, Joshua. I appreciate it. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. 